0: thankful for the team leading us in worship today. Amen? Amen. God bless you team. Thank you so much. I want to take a moment to introduce uh, our guest speaker that's with us Uh, and I'm so grateful for uh, Andrew's ministry uh, and uh, Taylor and their family. And I want you to know, Elijah's here with him today, and this is the first time Elijah's been in big church to hear his daddy preach, okay? So he's in for a real treat, and I think that's great, really great. For uh, 25 years or more, uh, our church was connected with a ministry called uh, Global Access Partnerships, okay? Global Access Partners Gap. Many of you know uh, George Collins, which God uh, used him as serving on mission in Asia to raise up this ministry about establishing partnerships uh, between churches uh, here in America and the West and also partners uh, serving around the world, national partners. And it was a great vision. God greatly used it. And uh, we have been blessed over the years to be part of that. Well, a few years ago, as George transitioned, uh, and this was become a ministry called Live Global, and taking on some newer dimensions, uh, I was a little concerned about the transition. Uh, but I was invited to uh, participate in what was sort of the inauguration of Live Global and happened in northern Thailand and partners were gathered from around the world and I was blessed to be there and uh, that was my opportunity to really meet and hear from the new leader of this incredible ministry Live Global and when I first saw him I thought he's awful young (laughs) but then I thought well everybody's young to me anymore you know (laughs) right pastor okay so <laughs> but then I heard him speak I heard him share his passion and uh, my heart was just bonded to him and I've watched these last uh, several years how God has raised him up and uh, this uh, part of a young generation to take leadership in a global way uh, we've been blessed to have him here before. We're so grateful to have him back with us. So give a warm welcome. It's Andrew Caldo comes to speak this morning.
1: God bless you, brother. Thank you. Thank, you. Thank you. It is a joy to be back here with you. Uh, two years ago, when I was last here, um, I was here alone because my wife was pregnant with twins and incredibly sick uh, during that time. We are here now with four kids. The twins are a year and a half and probably having the time of their life right down the hall. (laughs) So hopefully you get to see them later. Um, But all four of our kids are here. Elijah, our oldest, is five. Every time I come to West Park, I just want to start by saying thank you. West Park has been a great supporter of Live Global and our team. And multiple members of our team, Jeff and Julie Sanders, or Tony and Joy Anzalone, um, even Gary and Marty, who we've worked with in many different ways over the years, um, and others. So thank you, Carmen Hefner. Thank you for Pastor Sam and his just ministry to ABWE as a whole, um, as well as Live Global. It's such an encouragement. So our theme is Open Doors. And in that, I want to take that. It was originally written um, in Revelation 3 to the church in Philadelphia, but I believe that it's not limited to just that church. In fact, I think every generation, every person, every believer is given a unique set of open doors by God to walk through. And I don't want us to miss it. So Live Global, the crux of our ministry is really with the idea that the landscape for global missions has changed. Fifty years ago, there were different open doors that are closed now, but there's doors that are open to us now, and we want to take advantage of those doors, doors like partnership. And we'll talk about some of those open doors later um, in a little bit of what we get to be involved with, but my message today has one main point, and here's a main point. It's that in every generation god has uniquely lined up cultural changes geopolitical events and personal opportunities for his people to obey him and his mission to reach the nations he's uniquely lined up every generation three things cultural changes geopolitical events and personal opportunities or you could say he's given every generation an open door. Every believer, an open door. And if this concept is new to you, the the fact that God would be using things like geopolitical events and culture changes for gospel opportunities, I mean, I I hope today changes your life. Um, This is a theme found throughout scripture. For example, in Job chapter 42, verse 2, Job cries out to God, And he says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. It's Jeremiah in Lamentations when he is crying over the destruction of Israel. And he says in Lamentations 3 verse 37, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. It's Acts chapter 4, right, when Peter is preaching and he sees the death of Jesus not as coincidence, but God's plan in reaching the nations. So my message today has two parts. The second part is going to, I think, be kind of fun because we're going to jump into what are some of those changes happening today? What is on a big scale, what is God doing, I think, to open doors for the gospel and the Great Commission? And these, by the way, are things that my ministry jumps into and our team jumps into. But before we jump into that, the first thing I want to do is spend time looking at examples of people who faithfully pursued open doors. And so the the first part of examples of past faithfulness, the reason why I think it's helpful to dwell on examples of past faithfulness is because the Bible does it. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, says that these things, and he's actually writing about the Old Testament, he's talking about the nation of Israel and all the examples of their faithfulness and unfaithfulness. He says, these things were written for our example. And then even in Hebrews chapter 12, it says that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Who are those witnesses? It's everybody in chapter 11 that he goes through really recounting Old Testament stories and examples of people who were faithful. And so as I thought through, well, okay, who are the examples we should use? I realized that's essentially the entire Old Testament. And I don't think I have enough time today. I know Pastor Sam can go long, but that would be really long um, to go through the whole Old Testament. So I'm going to pick three. Um, for this. But, you know, when I was younger, I kind of, I would do like the read through the Bible in a year plan. And I was so bored at times in the Old Testament. Like, am I allowed to say that? Like, I, I would get bored. I'd, I'd, want, I'd be get so excited to get to the New Testament. But as I grew, I began to love the Old Testament for this reason. It was normal people who were just living their lives But we get to know two things. One, we get to know the end of the story, and we get a divine narration throughout it. Like, there are times the Old Testament, it just pulls back the curtain to tell us, they didn't know this, by the way, but here's what God was doing then. Or here's what God said, or here's how God was responding to what they were doing. And I realized, like, man, to to see that can encourage us to be faithful. So the first example from the Old Testament I want to look at is Joseph. Joseph. And you know the story of Joseph. He was loved by his dad, hated by his brothers, didn't exactly grow up in a great family, right? He'd blended family, maybe we would call it. There were four different moms involved, but they were all simultaneously involved. Um, Hated by his brothers, sold into slavery around age 17. Did nothing wrong. Then in slavery, he continues to be faithful. And in that, um, God blesses him. And then he, in being faithful, in pursuing purity and faithfulness, ends up in jail. And ends up in jail. And remember, this slavery and jail time is in a foreign country in a foreign nation, which means he wouldn't know the language, he wouldn't know the culture, he's not used to the food. Like, it's, it's a pretty miserable life. And then years in faithfulness, years and decades, he gets elevated to become second in command of Egypt, where God uses him to save not just his family, all of Egypt. God cared about all of unbelieving Egypt then, and that his name would be proclaimed there by raising Joseph. But we get a a glimpse into Joseph's mindset um, at the very end of Genesis, last chapter in Genesis. Uh, He gets reunited with his family um, right before his dad passes. Uh, His dad dies, and his brothers are afraid revenge is coming. So they send; they be, preemptively send a delegation to Joseph, and Joseph almost seems surprised that they would think that way. And he says a phrase: he says, "What you meant for evil, God meant for good." And think about that word; it's the same in English. It's the same in Hebrew. Meant. His brothers meant it for evil, which means they they had a plan; they had foresight. They acted with intention. They went out of their way to sell their brother into slavery. They meant it for evil. And all of those things, God had foresight and he had planned. God went out of his way to save people, to put Joseph where he wanted him to. Joseph viewed it as, well, that was God working. It was you working too, but it was God who was doing that. Another example, um, one of the examples I've come to love is Esther. If we were to sum up Esther's life in one word, it would be the word traumatic. Think about Esther. Both of her parents died at a young age. She's being raised by her uncle. Um, she's being raised while her nation is in captivity. Um, so while they are well, God-fearing Jews. They have a pagan king in a pagan government over them who's imposing pagan things, who's anti-God, anti-their religion. So much so, Esther's not her birth name. Her birth name was Hadassah. Esther's a Persian name. She had to take on a a Persian name to hide her ethnic identity and her religious identity. Then, to make matters worse, their their king is not a good king, um, not a great guy, uh, when his first or his previous wife refused to be objectified for a bunch of men, he has her banished. And then he eventually decides he wants another wife. Um, so he goes looking for the, the prettiest girls he can find. So there's a massive age gap here, too. And he settles on Esther. This is not a cool, fun, romantic relationship. This isn't like what we watch over in Europe, right, with the, all the pomp and circumstance. Um, it, Esther probably would recount her wedding night similar to most women um, who come from arranged marriages where they say that their wedding night was the worst night of their life. And she ends up in this, not knowing what God is doing. We take, a, we take for granted the end of the story. Her relationship with her husband's horrible. Like so much so, she doesn't know if when she goes in to see him, if she'll die that's a pretty dysfunctional marriage. <laughs> and then she gets, catches wind to make matters worse that there's a plan by the king's right-hand man to have her people completely wiped out, genocidally. And Mordecai comes to her, we talk of open doors, and he says, perhaps you are placed here for such a time as this. This may be your open door. But I think we missed that first word, perhaps, because they didn't know. Like when Esther said, fast all night so that when I go into the king, I don't die, I think she was awake all night wondering if the next day would be her last. Perhaps. When you read the book of Esther, it's a really unique book, and it's a really unique book because it's one of the only books in the Bible that God's name is never mentioned, And sometimes, I think, kind of like our lives, you begin to wonder, like, where is God? But the author of Esther does this incredible literary structure. He he forms a chiasm to where the entire book is written in a Hebrew poemic way to point to one single main point. You want to know what the main point of the book of Esther is? It's Esther chapter 6, verse 1. Here it is. And there was a night that the king couldn't sleep. It's the main point of Esther. And here's what the author's getting at. He's like, let me show you how God works. It is so random. Randomly, one night the king couldn't sleep. And so he randomly asks for scrolls to be brought to him. And they randomly go and pull off the one where Mordecai randomly overhears a plot to overthrow the king. So he reports it. And then the king randomly asks what we should do. Then randomly, Haman comes in. And look, random upon random. And by the way, this is randomly right when Esther happened to be meeting with the king. Look at how random all of this is. As if the author is to say, this is exactly how God works. Sleepless nights? Yeah, he, he lines those up too. Everything. This is a God who is ordering geopolitical things and cultural things and personal things all lined up to where Esther had no idea that there was an open door right in front of her, but she was faithful to walk through it. And when she did, not only were her people spared, but God's glory went to the nations. I think we miss it. It's Esther chapter 8 verse 17. So much was God's glory proclaimed among the nations that it says many of the non-Jews declared themselves to be Jews. Whether those were true conversions or whether it was just a, a cultural thing everybody got swept up in, I don't know. But God's name was being proclaimed so much that people wanted in on the action. God's about his name for the nations. Or a third example in Daniel. Dare to be a Daniel. When you look at Daniel's life, it's not much better than Esther's. Because during his childhood, he lives through the fall of his nation. And then he's led away into captivity. Like, think about what that was like. Like, pick whatever world superpower you dislike the most. Maybe we can go all the way to the Taliban. Imagine if they conquered our nation, said, your new headquarters is in Kabul, and we're going to take the, give me all of your honor roll students. They're coming with us. And Daniel's one of those. And he's taken... And then his life doesn't get better. He's given a Babylonian name. He's given Babylonian clothing. He's given Babylonian food. Like, you ever go to another culture and you're given food that you're not, just not used to? Or a name that's not even yours? It's the name of a Babylonian God? He probably becomes a eunuch. That would ruin my day. Um, it, uh, but in that, Daniel is faithful. And Daniel lives a life of faithfulness. And here's how much. This is amazing. The book of Daniel is incredible. So the first, we know the Daniel and the lion's den thing. After Daniel, because of his faithfulness, is saved from the lion's den. This is Daniel 6, verse 25. It says this. Then King Darius wrote. So this is the pagan king. Wrote to all the peoples and nations and languages that dwell in the earth. The whole known empire at the time. He says, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree in all my royal dominion that people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel because he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion never comes to an end. He delivers and he rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lion's. God lining up these events and then Daniel faithfully walking through the door results in the known world being proclaimed of God and his saving power. Amazingly, that's not the only time in Daniel's life. You flip back just a chapter later, Nebuchadnezzar has kind of a similar thing, right? He goes insane, he comes back, Daniel being kind of his right-hand man throughout that. Nebuchadnezzar, This is amazing. You're reading the Old Testament. You see Jewish king after Jewish king after Jewish king who are just unfaithful and walk away from God. Then you get to this captivity and you get a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, who writes part of our Bible. This is where it's one of the only spots. The Old Testament goes from Hebrew to Aramaic and Nebuchadnezzar writes this, Daniel 4 verse 34. It says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I bless the most high and praise him and honor him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is a God who's lining up everything for his glory. And if we, like these people, pursue faithfulness, we will see God's glory go to the nations. It's not just the Old Testament. The New Testament's filled with examples. I mean, you see Jesus. When Jesus comes, um, Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5 says, I'll I'll read it for you. Um, 4, verses 4 through 5, and it says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons when the fullness of time had come. Scholars talk a lot about that, of like, what are the fullness of time? And most of what they come with is like, you know, the the world was united under a common language. The road, the, you had the Romans, right, who united this empire and put a road system in place for the spread of the gospel. And Jude, all these political things that are happening that God's using, including randomly, remember, beginning of the gospels, a, a census that comes from Caesar to make sure Joseph and Mary get to the very spot that Jesus was prophesied to be born. That's how God works. But then you have the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul viewed his life as just a series of open doors. Um, The Apostle Paul just said that he had an open door to the Gentiles and he took advantage of every opportunity that comes to him. But one of the amazing things, it's in Philippians 1. So the Apostle Paul, you know his life, it's not an easy life. The book of Philippians comes to us while Paul is in jail, which is amazing because Philippians, scholars call it the epistle of joy while he's in a Roman jail cell which was, like, jail today is not fun, um, and depending on our jails, they go from, like, moderately inconvenient to, like, really kind of dangerous, but all of them pale in comparison to a Roman jail, where you didn't have wreck time, you didn't have showers, you were chained to a Roman guard, sitting there all day, ankles chained, hands chained, and you only ate if your friends brought you food, and so Paul, in the midst of that, here's what he says in Philippians 1, 12 through 14, He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest of my imprisonment that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul viewed even going to jail as an open door for the gospel, and as he is sitting there chained to a Roman guard that rotates through every, you know, several shifts a day. He views every one of them as a captive opportunity for sharing the gospel. Amen. Gospel opportunities to where he says it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard that I am here for the gospel. Paul viewed doors. The New Testament church just viewed every opportunity, right? Remember our main premise, that God is lining up cultural events, geopolitical events, and personal events for the spread of the gospel, for us to walk through in obedience. And they viewed that as such, so much so that Peter writes that they were able to joyfully enjoy and endure the plundering of their goods for the sake of the kingdom. Everything they saw as an open door. And it doesn't end here in the New Testament, right? We could go through all the examples, right? You can go through Ruth or Abraham. You could go through other New Testament examples with the disciples. You could go throughout church history. That's fun. Like, look at the people who throughout church history just faithfully endured. Like, God lined things up. Whether it was Gutenberg with the printing press, and then Luther who used the printing press, and the reformation of the church. There was Tyndale who sought to to translate the Bible into English so people could actually understand it. Whether it was Whitfield or Edwards who faithfully preached, just preached in the open so that the gospel would advance, or John Newton who sought to see the slave trade abolished, and he did so in England during his lifetime, once and for all. Whether it was others, Judson, who gave his life going to Burma, saw an open door there for the gospel and pursued it. History is filled with it. And by the way, there's open doors. Paul will talk of closed doors too. My favorite closed door, the one I praise God, God closed, uh, comes in Romans 1. Paul wanted to get to Rome so bad, but he said that God kept preventing him. So he did the second best thing he could. He wrote a letter. Praise God, because that letter is one of the most encouraging, clear, gospel-saturated letters in our Bible. But there's a common trait as we look through all of these examples. And every person here faced a decision, and it's the same decision that faces you and faces me. They either could give in to being led by comfort or fear, or they could pursue obedience. Comfort or fear, those are the things I think hardwired in us to process everything that happens around us. And if you think about it, every commercial you see on TV blends in one of these two ways. Most of the commercials tend towards comfort. You pursue comfort, maximize comfort and anything marketed to us. Then the news cycle, the new cycle, bends more towards fear, right? Everything's meant to kind of motivate us one way. But the Bible sets before us to dis- disregard both of those things and pursue obedience, to pursue the obedience before us, and not to miss. God's heart for the nations Jesus gave us a great commission go into all the world make disciples as you go baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit teaching them all things whatever I've commanded you that he is with us to faithfully pursue that to faithfully see the open doors in front of us we have to move away from comfort or fear they're hardwired in us they're so hard. And, and so I'm going to jump to part two. Part two of our talk. What are the open doors in front of us? What has God put before us today? But here's the thing. As we go through each of these, each of these, our default response will probably be to comfort or fear-based. Fear of what this change could mean to interrupt our lives or comfort in like, how could we exploit that for our own good? And so here's four global changes. By the way, these are things that Live Global wants to lean into, unique open doors for us. Um, so I'll give some examples as we go through. The first one, and this is one I, you've heard plenty if you've been here, is the idea of a global dysphoria. Unlike any other time in human history, the nations are moving and the nations are coming here. Even within your own backyard, there's, what, 60-some different nations represented in five minutes, I think, of the church. The nations are coming to us. This is a gospel opportunity. Praise God they're coming to us, by the way, because a lot of them are coming from countries we couldn't get to, right? I'm reminded of our friends, Megan and Lewis, who um, were reaching out to Saudi Arabia students who were here as exchange students during college. So you can't get into Saudi Arabia, and if you can, you can't openly share the gospel. But when they're here in America, they're interested in the opportunities. In fact, there's even an initiative, Live Global, partnered with every ethnic within ABWE called the Afghan Initiative. So a year and a half ago, when the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan, right? Like, remember, cultural things. God uses cultural things. It took six days, or 11 days For the entire country to fall to the control of the Taliban. Then the Taliban went on a manhunt to find every Christian and systematically execute them. They're doing it, and there were a number of Christians running for their lives, running to different parts of Afghanistan as the Taliban's chasing them, and then made it across the border to a refugee camp. They were in a refugee camp where they realized that they only had a certain amount of time for another country to take them, otherwise, their camp would close down eventually and send everybody back home to a known and certain death. And we got to meet some of these people. We were able to sponsor their visas to come to the U.S., but not just come to the U.S., just so they're out of harm's way and we can save them, as good as Ed B. Come to the U.S. to strategic locations where there's other large Afghan populations most of them still muslim most of them motivated by political reasons they helped out in political things but they need the gospel and strategically put people in key locations here so that they can reach out and begin to evangelize their own neighbors like, we helped send missionaries to america there's a global dysphoria there, there's unreached people groups that are coming from remote areas to major cities and they're coming here see that open door. Pursue that open door. Don't be led by comfort or fear. It's uncomfortable to work cross-culturally. It is like there's a a pressure, external pressure that would want us to give into fear of what this change could mean for our communities. View this as a gospel opportunity for open doors. One of the second big changes we see happening is in the realm of technology. Technology has completely changed our lives, and COVID highlighted that right when everything shifted online for us. But it wasn't just us. 90% of the world's population has access to the internet. And I often joke as we travel, as we've gone throughout the nations, and we've been in third world countries and um, just all over Asia and the Caribbean and other places, the place with the worst cell service I've had is in Pennsylvania. (laughs) It's true. Maybe it's the hills. I don't know. But we've watched people in other countries. Like, I watched, this was eight years ago. Remember the Pokemon Go craze? Um, Kids running around with phones or whatever. I was driving through this. I was riding it through the slums of Indonesia, Surabaya, and I watch these group of kids in slums with smartphones out, and I ask our driver, Ari, I said, what are they doing? He's like, oh, Pokemon Go, so many Pokestops here. I'm like, that's here too. Okay, that just came out. Um, There's about seven billion smartphones globally. Here's one of the interesting things. When you have a question and you don't know who to ask, what do you do? You Google it. Imagine if you're in another country and you have a question, maybe a religious question, and you know that you'd get in political trouble if you asked it. What do you think you do? You Google it. And we have people who are Googling, finding resources online, and finding Jesus. We have people on our team that are discipling virtually, not not near as ideal as being there together in person, but gospel opportunities. We have somebody on our team who's been building mobile apps, and these apps are apps that have gospel material in them in their native tongue. Um, These are minor languages scattered throughout, um, we'll say Asia, because I know we're live streaming, um, in a country that does not want the gospel to advance. Now, most of these people are actually barely literate in their native tongue, and the problem is if you come in and speak one of the major trade languages with them, it would be akin to me trying to share the gospel with you in whatever language you took in high school. You kind of, you, you remember some words, but man, it, it's not your heart language. So we have apps in their heart language. We have eight apps now that are being used throughout these countries, throughout these mountainous regions. And the amazing thing is it, they can multiply incognito. People can pass it phone to phone. There's not paper trails there. If you get stopped, like, there, there's not a, even a physical book, but there's an app. It can share the gospel, and people are coming to Christ. A second open door for us is technology. We will be tempted to view technology just to maximize our comfort, to binge Netflix or to browse on social media all day, play video games or whatever your particular bent with technology is. We'll be just tempted to just let it consume us for our comfort rather than viewing it as a gospel opportunity. One of the third major changes that we're seeing globally is the fact that Americans are actually having a harder time getting into other countries. But there's national believers there already from decades of faithful missionary work, and they're ready to carry the load and we get to partner with them. Last month, I came back from Burma. Um, Burma is an incredible country. They've gone through some really hard times. When I first went in 2013, it was considered the fourth poorest country in the world. Um, They began to climb out of that. They began to embrace democracy. They began to develop. Then a year and a half ago, that came crashing down as a military coup took over. And I've been to the country four times, and it's sad to see a country that was developing and progressing suddenly regress. But in that, Burmese believers are faithfully taking the gospel. It was part of a college graduation and seminary graduation where hundreds of Burmese believers who had been trained by Burmese believers were being graduated to be sent out to unreach Burmese people groups so that the gospel could advance. Burma, with about 40 to 50 unreached people groups. That means people who, not only are they not Christians, that means they've never met a Christian. They've never seen a Bible. They have no hope to believe because nobody's taken it to them. It's the foundation of why missions exist. There's believers, Burmese believers, who are taking the gospel in, and in one location, um, I won't share because it, it's online, but in one location, there's hundreds of baptisms happening in the midst of a military coup. There's churches being planted, the gospels going forward. We get to come alongside and partner, but it's happening without any Americans being on the ground there. What do you know? God can work without us. It's amazing. The the opportunity for partnership in missions is huge. And partnership looks different in different countries. Partnership can still be going, but coming alongside believers, right? We can still go to Jamaica and come alongside our brothers there who are faithfully serving and ministering. Partnership could be going on specialized trips. It could be sending resources. All of these things Live Global embraces and gets involved in. and We want to be a catalyst for is an open door in our generation, then there's the fourth opportunity. The fourth option um, or fourth open door, these changing global trends. Remember, God is lining up geopolitical things and cultural things and personal opportunities. The fourth one is that every believer can be involved in global missions. God has a heart for the nations. We heard it this morning, we've heard it over and over that all the nations would worship him. Let all the peoples praise you. Oh God, let all the peoples praise you. And every believer has a role in the Great Commission. And that is because of the things we just lined out before. You have access to other nations that are coming here, you have access to the world unlike any other generation prior. Like, when I went to to Burma just a few weeks ago, the most amazing thing is I was flying in luxury on airplanes and then hanging out in nice air-conditioned airports all along the way. Think of any other time beyond the last 50 years that that was possible. To get overseas was dangerous, it was time-consuming, it was expensive, and then when you went, you didn't have communication along the way. And here I am, video chatting with my family and friends back home along the journey, We have access to the world that missionaries in generations past couldn't fathom. And I believe we have access to the world because generations of missionaries past have prayed for it. That God would open doors of opportunity for us to get involved. We have people who get involved with specialized skill sets without ever leaving their home country. Um, One of the needs we found globally um, was for children's ministry. In countries across the world, Christianity is growing and exploding, but what that led to is an entire generation of believers that is first-generation believers. They didn't go to church growing up because their families weren't Christians, their parents weren't Christians, and they don't know how to train their children in the faith. So we come alongside with training and children's material, and uh, this children's material, by the way, has been translated, 99 Adventures, you may have heard of it, Um, It's been being translated, it'll be in 17 languages by the end of the year. Every language, we estimate at least 100,000 kids being trained in the next two years. You run the math, that's well over a million kids impacted by this. There was a need. The need was, how do we have illustrations and coloring pages to come alongside this? And our friend Wesley, who's a graphic illustrator, jumped up to the challenge. He's illustrating 99 lessons. Each lesson gets a coloring page that can be used for some of these cultures and languages where the parents may not be believers and may not be literate. And so as kids maybe come home from a, a Bible school or something else, they can show their kids a picture to retell the story. And Wesley, without leaving his basement, will impact more than a million to two million kids in the next few years. Including the underground church in China, there's an opportunity for every believer to get involved in the Great Commission. You can pray like never before because we get real-time prayer requests. And I, we've read the, together the biography of Adoniram Judson this past year, and it just amazes me. Like it, he, Judson was the first American missionary sent out. It amazes me how seemingly not that long ago, a couple hundred years, how vastly different the world was. How writing a letter was so hard and rare that it was done only on exception. And how updates back home were infrequent, they were sparse, and they were nowhere near real time. That he would write to them to pray for his wife who was sick. And by the time they received the letter, she had been buried for months. We don't have that today. You can pray real time for missionaries. You can give strategically. You can jump in and serve and you can serve globally but you can serve locally with the nations right here in your own backyard. And so God is working. He's lining up cultural events. He's lining up geopolitical things. He's lining up personal opportunities. And I pray that we would have the heart like some of those examples we looked at at the beginning. Like Daniel who didn't look at his own life as his own, who didn't ca- get caught up in the politics of the time, of which there were many, but he instead sought faithfulness to Jesus and he pursued open doors in front of him and God used him in mighty, mighty ways. We would remember the example of Esther, who in the midst of a traumatic life, did not embrace the identity of a victim. She didn't embrace everything she had done to her as her new identity, didn't pursue that as an excuse not to be faithful, but instead she pursued faithfulness. And God used her for the fame of his name among the nations. Or Joseph, who just viewed everything that happened to him not as something to be held onto with bitterness, but as something God was working that he could walk through in freedom, freedom of forgiveness, freedom in love, freedom to see the open door in front of him. And God used it for the fame of his name among pagan Egypt, the superpower of the day. So my prayer is that you would see the open door. But I know when I talk to a room this size, just statistically, I don't know every person in here, just statistically, there are people here that you you don't yet identify as a Christian. You've not yet put your faith in Jesus. And I want to say, to you, there's an open door. There's one open door, and that is the door of salvation. Acts 14.27, Acts writes, where there is an open door, an opportunity for you today. Jesus calls you and he invites you to surrender your life to him to trust in him, and he will save you. These open doors, these examples, aren't of people who earned their sta- good standing with God. They're people that trusted in God. They believed in him, and he used them. And then you will find, along with all of us, at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you are saved through faith. And this is, this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast, then you'll find that just as certain as we are saved by grace through faith, the very next verse is true, that God has prepared good works for us to walk in. He's given every one of us good works, or shall we say an open door for obedience. My friends, I wanna beg you to see the gospel opportunities in front of you, to pursue the open door that you would make your life count by making his name known. Let me pray for us. Father, you are good. And Lord, you work things in a way that we we can't imagine. How you redeem things and line things up, things that seem horrible, things that seem hard, That you have a plan, and your plan is bigger than just us. Your plan is that the nations would love and worship you. The people who don't know you would come to you. So Lord, I pray for my friends here today that you would give them eyes to see your faithfulness. That you would give them ears to hear of the opportunities in front of them. That you would give them hearts ready to receive that and walk through that. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the examples of faithfulness that have gone before us. And Lord, would we be found faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.